Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. If you want to look at Romans 7, 22 to 23, I'll read from there. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. And so throughout Romans 7, Paul pictures a divide between the mind and the body that he split. And this divide, this dualism, is characteristic of sin. It's a kind of unreality of sin, the deception of sin. And salvation, then, is deliverance from this deception, from this lie. Salvation means to be healed of this false dualism between the body and the mind, or the discord and divide between the spirit and the body. But maybe this lie might be said to characterize the age, the secular age in which we live. My question is, is the secular, our understanding of the secular, and I'll define it here, is this the truth or in fact is this itself a deception? Maybe the premier expert on The idea of the secular is a man named Charles Taylor. He's a Canadian, and he's written a book called In a Secular Age. He says there's three meanings of what it means to live today. Number one, he says there's a divorce between religion and politics. As public spaces have mostly been emptied of God. Number two, he says religious belief and practice are no longer the norm. And number three, he says, belief in God is just one option among many and may not be the easiest option. And we might say that this country is founded on the hope of secularism, that we can separate God and politics, and that we make Christianity then Religion, maybe in general, a kind of private affair. That there is the law of the mind, and there is the law of the body, and never the twain shall meet. But we live out this lie, I think, at great cost. As the church and faith are implicitly made to serve the state. This is the way William Penn defined it when he's setting up his colony, Pennsylvania. And he formulates the difference that I think is characteristic in the United States. Excuse some of the old English here, but I think you'll get it. Religion and policy, or Christianity and magistry, are two distinct things, have different ends, and may be fully prosecuted without respect one to the other. The one is for purifying and cleaning the soul and fitting it for a future state. 
The other is for maintenance and preserving of civil society in order to the outward conveniency and accommodation of men in this world. A magistrate is a true and real magistrate, though not a Christian, as well as a man is a true and real Christian without being a magistrate. That is, he's saying, serving God is an inward affair. And obeying the magistrate, obeying the politicians, or obeying the state is an outward reality. And the two, then, should not impinge on one another. According to John Locke, and many of our founding fathers were great fans of John Locke and were following his philosophy, he says the care of souls cannot belong to the civil magistrate because his power consists only in outward force. But true and saving religion consists in the inward persuasion of the mind, without which nothing can be acceptable to God. So in the American experiment, the state controlled the body, and religion is concerned with the inward self. And the two realms, in this understanding, are not supposed to overlap. But what this means in practice is that the church was consigned to a spiritual realm which was thought not to pertain to the political. People make an inward judgment about truth and salvation. There's this, the assumption of the inner mind as distinct from the outer body, which remember in Paul's definition characterizes sin. Religion is then aligned with the inner working of the mind and civil society with the outer, with the body. And so the magistrate, the politicians, the state has nothing to do with religion in this sense because, quote, it is harmless to the state. Now we ran into the same thing in Japan in what is called state Shinto leading up to World War II they declared that Shinto is the state ideology and no religion at all, and therefore all Japanese citizens have to practice Shinto. And as one Christian explained, we were forcibly convinced that we should honor the emperor as part of Christian worship. And so every church would have a picture of the emperor all would bow to the emperor. What happens is that Christianity concedes the realm of the body to the state. Obeying the laws of the state, oh, that's non-religious. That's bodily. But of course, in saying that, it's a means of coercing obedience. That is, they're saying, well, this is the way God ordained it, the separation. What Paul is saying, this separation is definitive of sin. Thus the state implicitly came to dominate the church in Japan. And I think the same thing has happened in this country. Though we attempted to throw off the domination of the state over religion, 
We did so in part by conceding to the state the bodily, the outward, the coercive. Now this is not to deny, there's certainly a focus on the centrality of the individual, on the centrality of human rights, on the access to the natural law, supposedly, of rationality. And this along with the role of religion, it's a kind of continuing tension that we don't quite know what to do with. Maybe this is a peculiarity of the secular, but it is a peculiarity based upon, I think, the lie of a kind of absolute individualism. That is an isolated, self-determined, inward autonomy accompanied by this notion that the inward and outward body and soul, mind and body, church and state inhabit separate realms. It is the lie the gospel would expose. But more than that, it is the unreality from which the gospel delivers us. And so I don't think secularism is a unique development in human history. There may be such a thing, and I think we may be characterized by it. But it is simply another version of the age-old grip that the world and the law have on the human heart. First of all, I don't think it's factually true, the secular. In most of the world, including the United States, many, if not all parts of Europe, most of the Middle East, Africa, South Asia, and Latin America, it is very hard to discern a divorce between religion and politics one of the prime claims of secularism. And it is not at all clear that decline in belief typifies the United States, Latin America, the Middle East, and South Asia. And the third part, you know, the conditions for belief may have changed for some people. But I think we have to ask what people. That is, we do have the rise of a new atheism. There is large-scale unbelief. But it may be that we project a large-scale belief back in history, into periods of history, where in fact it did not actually exist. I think we do that here in the United States. We always think, oh, back in the frontier days when everybody was Christian. Well, of course, we know that actually the unchurched were a higher percentage in that period than at any other time in American history. And of course, world history, at a time when public disbelief, you know, in the period that Rome or the period of Christendom, that disbelief might result in punishment or death. Well, of course, everyone is going to profess belief. After the formal Christianization of the Roman Empire and well into the early modern period, unbelief became criminal. Paganism and heresy, not just atheism, brought terrible punishment, gruesome sorts of torture and death. Long before Calvin and Luther, who also tortured, burned, and killed the heretics, but the church and government tortured, burned, and executed critics and reformers. 
go back in the history of Bible translation most of those who did the translating died as a result the church and its political backers the joining of church and politics had to resort to force and authority to sustain the appearance of Christian belief long before the 1500s because belief did not seem to be nearly as irresistible as Charles Taylor pictures it. Apparently it was not virtually impossible not to believe. And so I think for common people it may be that religious indifference has been the characteristic form. A wide variety of literature demonstrates that the church needed the support of secular authorities to sustain even a, a tentative hold on religious commitment before 1500 and certainly after 1500. Rather than belief being axiomatic, belief was contingent and threatened from inside as well as outside. Belief was not primarily challenged though by unbelief. In other words, it wasn't believing and unbelieving as unbelief speaks of caring about religion. I don't think most people really care. You know, in my family, I have four brothers. My oldest brother is a businessman. He has an MBA. He was business inclined. My second brother is an artist. And he's been an artist his whole life. My third brother is a musician. And I pursued theology. Isn't it that we've just pursued our particular tastes? Isn't it the case that many of us are not musically inclined? Maybe some people aren't religiously inclined. Now, I don't think this is exactly right. But skepticism may accurately characterize, you know, well, maybe the history of ideas, maybe intellectuals, those working within a philosophical tradition. But I don't think it actually captures the experience of the majority, which is just really kind of indifference. One scholar, John Butler, notes concerning church attendance prior to 1500, he says, typically absence and certainly indifference are noted, often with alarm, but little dissected. Nobody bothered to ask. And so part of what is at stake in the reading of secularity is what we're supposed to make of the post-secular, which is the period that many say we're entering. That is, there's a rise of religiosity in public life. If the secular was equated with a detached rationalism, with a kind of mind-body dualism, with individualism, with the privatization of religion, which is certainly connected to individualism, and these modern categories are now collapsing in what is sometimes called the postmodern or post-secular age. Does this mean that there is an opening for religion and God? In other words, we might look at this too optimistically. There is, in fact, a surge of right-wing religiosity. There is a surge of right-wing politics, and the two things go together. And this is happening not only in this country. As you know, this is happening all over the world. I suggest this isn't something that we should celebrate as it has preserved the very problems which gave rise to secularity in the beginning. 
And so when we go back to the Pauline critique, Paul's understanding of the human predicament, you know, what is the shared problem? It's not irreligion. It's not levels of religious belief. In fact, Paul counted himself the chief of sinners when he was a zealous Jew. It's not the possibility of believing otherwise. And if you've just noticed, that's Taylor's three secularization theses, the very meaning of secularization. In spite of the Protestant notion that faith or belief or unbelief is fundamental, And this, of course, has given rise to the conceptions of the secular with its notions of dualisms and private religion. Paul does not locate the fundamental human problem with religion or irreligion or belief and unbelief. For Paul, people are in bondage. People have been deceived. They've been deceived due to an orientation to the law. And by the law, we might think not just the Jewish law, whether the law from God, the laws of nature, or from the angels. That's not really what Paul's concern is. But the problem is we take this false symbolic order as primary. And of course, we're living in a deception. And it creates a gap in which we are alienated from God and we're alienated, split within ourselves, creating a duality. And he says we're slaves. We're enslaved to a lie. And here the law itself is not its exactly the problem, but it's the primacy, the first order reality that is given to the law. You know, the law, or what we might just call the symbolic order, Maybe he was talking sometimes about the Jewish law. Though Paul is specifically arguing, this is not simply a Jewish problem. This is the human problem. And in turn, the divisions and dualism that mark Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female. You know, the law within my mind and the law within my body. This is what Jesus Christ is addressing and delivering us from. And so Paul is engaging a universal and fundamental predicament in which the human subject is structured by this lie, this orientation. And the result of this in Paul's description, guess what? It's very similar to what secularism is described as. Except rather than privileging individualism, Paul sees individualism or the isolated I as a sickness. There is the evacuation of the reality of God in Paul's description. But notice that Paul in Romans 7, when he's describing this, he's deceived about the evacuation of God. He doesn't understand he's displaced God with the law when he's a Pharisee. And there is the creation, in fact, of a polity, of a city, of a politics, the city of man, this dark world, you know, the secular hypothesis. And so this is not to deny that there is something called secularism, but this is not unique in human history. Maybe there is a unique form of it, 
There is alienation within the self. There is a separation from God. There is the creation of the city of man. There is this dark world, but that is universal. Yes, there is the secular, but this modern problem shares a genealogy that has encompassed all of humanity. And the danger is that to isolate the secular as a peculiar epic in human history is to pit the secular against the religious in a kind of dialectic that is factually wrong, but it misses the manner in which the symbolic, you know, whether it's sacred or secular, always displaces the divine reality. And this concept is lent a force that characterizes the human tendency to assign primacy to the secular, to the law, to the symbolic. And then to imagine the division and dualism are reality. But of course this is an unreality. And so the danger is that in reifying the secular, as if it has the power claimed on its behalf, as if it is the law ordering, you know, we're subject to this law of the secular ordering human reality, the danger is the church will concede power, honor, and control of the body, and of course the body of Christ is what we're talking about, to the state and the flag, and will displace the cross. This shows itself in the slowly evolving undermining of Paul's radical gospel where Paul pictures the Christian believer as entering a new society a new culture the church where the old reigning socio-cultural order does not pertain no longer Jew and Gentile no longer slave and free you know for the first Christians this was obvious Christ was Lord and it was understood that professing and acting on this faith it may mean death for me and it may mean death for my family, but so be it. Then in a Constantinian Christianity, when Emperor Constantine converts, supposedly, there was a divide. And now we have the phrase, we actually have the rise of the term religious, of secularity. Both terms originally referred to clergy. There were the religious clergy, the monks, the friars, the nuns who devoted full time to religious life. And then there was the secular clergy, which had to deal with the outside world and would have to occupy two distinct realms. If we skip ahead about a thousand years to Henry VIII, who becomes the head of what is the state church with the power of the national state embodied in the king. It was the king's laws and decrees that the subjects made absolute submission to, not to, you know, the pope or the bishop of Rome. And I think this led to a direct contradiction of Paul's picture of freedom from the law. Obedience to the king was now equated with obedience to God and was thus an acting out of holiness. How are you a good Christian? Well, you just do what King Henry says. You're a good citizen. And no longer is there a departure from the reigning social order, but the subsumption of the church, the co-opting of the church into this order. 
And so obedience of a servant to a master, of a wife to a husband, of a pupil to a teacher, of a subject to a prince, you know, of a lower degree to a higher degree, well, that was analogous to obedience to God. And the whole deferential social order was wrapped in divinity and determined by God's scheme of redemption. That should be in quotes. That is, I don't think this is God's redemption. This is a displacement of God's redemption. This church-state order that people imagined is ordained by God is of a human invention. And so we do not throw this off by conceding to the dualism between mind and body and then relinquishing power to the state. That's the problem. We acknowledge that in Christ we are called to a fullness, an embodied reality in which mind and body, heaven and earth, creator and creation, in which the culture of the church is the one true culture. And these then are all brought into relationship. So let's close by looking at Romans 8.2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Ephesians 1.22-23 He put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is the reality we have realized. This unified understanding no longer allowing the state to intrude its symbols, its flag, its implicit authority over the body of Christ. Christ unites body and spirit. Christ unites us together in the city of God and the city of man is no longer our authority. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.